Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a book and brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Alexandra Fuller, winner of the Winifred Holtby Memorial Prize and the Letra Ulysses Award. Her most recent book is Travel Light, Move Fast, published by our friends at Penguin Press. Alexandra, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. Um, Alexandra, you lived in Africa until your mid-20s, and then you moved to Wyoming. Why Wyoming? Uh, so I was living in Zambia, and uh, the Zambezi River borders Zambia and Zimbabwe, and I met an American river guide who'd come out attracted to the river. Um, and we lived, uh, we were married in Zambia, and we lived there for a couple of years, and then um, ended up, it's funny, I've just been writing about this for a magazine article. Uh, we had My oldest daughter was born there, and I made a, a sort of weird Edwardian-looking outfit out of a mosquito net because we lived right in the Zambezi Valley, you know, very beautiful, very lush, and, um, you know, and rife with fever. It's sort of what that area is famous for. Um, and I think I really thought this was normal and fine. And I think my American husband took, you know, a season of fevers and said, this is it, we're getting out with our young family. So we ended up in Wyoming. Excellent. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Um, let's talk about your book, Travel Light, Move Fast. This book is a book about the loss of your father, uh, more specifically the loss of your father while traveling in a foreign land. Um, and Alexandra, I lost my father almost exactly a year ago as we sit oh, here wow. and talk. Mm -hmm. And as such, this was a very good book for me to read, um, especially as you remember your father greatly through his sense of humor and witticisms. Um, before we talk about specifics, can you talk a little bit about the undertaking of writing a book about someone who has just passed? Is it a process of catharsis or a need to jot down as much as you can while you can or both? I think neither. I think that I know that I write the book that I need to read. I write, I look on the shelves, and if the book's not there, I write it. And after my dad died, I, there were a lot of books on grief, um, but from a very Western perspective. Um, and there are, you know, books that are written from um, a, a, what I'm aware of anyway, Lakota spirituality, um, and and uh, other indigenous cultures, but that's really what, to me, seemed to be missing. That when what we don't have in white settler language or culture, both um, in the U.S. and in Zimbabwe, is a sense that there isn't a loss at death; that your loved one has moved on to becoming an ancestor, and that that is something. Um, when I was being raised until I was seven, I mean, sort of strange. Um, side effect of being raised by white supremacists is that they didn't do the labor of raising us themselves. You know, we were raised by, uh, my sister and I were raised until we went to boarding school by the indigenous community around us. And so until I was, you know, almost eight, I took it for granted that ancestors were everywhere. They were in our trees, they stayed with us. Um, and that there was, um, that there was, uh, that it's your civic duty to grieve correctly to break the material bond with your loved ones so that you can get to that sort of universal bond. And I just didn't see that on the bookshelves. What I really saw was that this loss was permanent, that it seemed to me like a very white settler 
sort of spiritual, yeah, spiritually it felt very white settler and that it feels like a very amputated, very sort of um, uh, dead, I mean truly like a dead grief rather than a grief that got you, that did the work of suffering for you um, to sort of erode your own ego and that, I mean I think the thing that for me that was most valuable that I took from particularly Mashona culture, but also the little that I had experienced from immersing myself in Lakota culture while I was, you know, I'd written and been out on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation for a magazine article and written a book uh, about it. But, you know, this sense that um, that one's ancestors um, insist on a lively <laughs> process, not a deadening process, and that you know, your duty when your father dies or your parent dies is to shift into the place of being an elder. And uh, I don't see that on our bookshelves. I don't see what that process looks like. And so what I wanted to do was dissect for myself what had made my father an elder. I mean, he was a very exuberant, very sort of full of life elder. He was a very... Um, I mean, he was very funny about it. When he was 70, he said, I intend to misspend the rest of my youth, you know, until he, was, <laughs> until he died. But, so he really had a sense of exuberance, but um, he didn't take his death personally, he didn't take his dying personally, he didn't take himself personally by the end, which seems to me to be the essence of what eldership is about. But we don't have those, in white settler culture, we don't have initiation ceremonies. And, and we, I mean, in my, in my um, I'm Episcopalian for want of, anything else and it's a it's a very amputated spirituality there's um there really isn't a way um i don't think of grieving your way into eldership when you lose a parent and so for me when i at least started to write the book that's what it was about thank you so much alexandra um your book opens with your father waking up from an induced coma and he looks around taking in his surroundings and says bus station um can you describe for us the sense of displacement he must have been feeling and where he actually was? So my father loved Paris. Um, he had grown up in England and that sort of, you know, boiled cabbage, gin-soaked, depressed, uh, cold, aristocratic, gloomy Britain post-war, where the aristocrats were sort of feeling... I mean, very much like the sense you have now in the U.S. that they were going to lose everything if they didn't grab it all and that the socialists were taking over. And so there was this real sense of doom and gloom. And um, as soon as he could, and, and I mean, as soon as he could, he fled that. But before he really fled, um, it was the tradition back then that you go and do a year on the continent to sort of sow your wild oats. The English really invented the sort of white supremacy or cultural supremacy that um, insists that what you do abroad doesn't matter. It's just what you do at home, as long as you keep that um, veneer shiny. Um, and my father loved the freedom of mis what the English would consider misbehaving. I think he loved Paris because it was first taste of freedom, probably loved wine romance, all of it, the language. He spoke terrible French, but there was something about Paris that he just um, had a very romantic attachment to. And somebody had told him that Budapest was the poor man's Paris. And so uh, he certainly hadn't told me about it, but they, uh, my parents decided to take off to Budapest for a vacation from their fish and banana farm in Zambia, um, where my mother was having so much fun floating up and down the Danube and um, 
showing off her very good legs in the in the um, in the in the pools, um, in the famous um, spa pools that my dad didn't mention he wasn't feeling well. And so by the time he did mention he wasn't feeling well, in fact he never said that. He just accused the waiter of being a spy and then collapsed. Um, and so he he did. He woke up in. Uh, a crumbling communist era ICU hospital in the middle of Budapest, in the middle of a heat wave, in the middle of a massive refugee crisis with Syrian and Afghani refugees just blocking the streets. And the thing that stayed with me was that although he must have been confused, and I asked him, you know, are you confused? He said, well, yeah, a bit, but I'm always a bit confused. He was so by then I think had suffered correctly that he was the essence of himself there wasn't much ego left and so that confusion didn't manifest in any kind of frantic way I mean in fact one of the very last things he said to me is I've been very lucky thank you so much Alexandra um you mentioned a little bit later that your father hated doctors uh, on account of their propensity to attract dying or wounded people, then finish off the job. Um, I know what he means, but why did he, your father, feel this way? I mean, I think what I would say is that my father had had honed after, you know, 50 years of living in, in southern Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, a sense of massive self-reliance. So he didn't really see the point of doctors and especially I mean if you go to a Zambian hospital by then you're incredibly sick and you're being dropped off in order that yeah I mean it's a very very much last ditch effort if you can't treat yourself at home you, you yeah you've got to be pretty desperate to go to a, a Zambian hospital um particularly until recently so I think his sort of sense was that by the time you reach that stage, should you get sick enough? Because you would never go for every minor little complaint. And I mean, to put it in perspective, if you're living in, say, a country like Zambia or Zimbabwe, and you see the level of people's acceptance of suffering, they certainly don't trot off to the hospital for every minor ache and pain. I mean, they deliver children on their own. They die on their own. They suffer malaria on their own. They endure. And I think my father really had taken that on. I mean, I don't think he was ever someone who was thrilled to go to doctors. He was too busy sort of living his life. And he hadn't chosen to be in places where, um, yeah, by the time you went to hospital, you need to have been run over at least. Thank you so much, Alexander. Um, you mentioned when discussing uh, Rhodesia that the black insurgents, as you described them, had the open support of North Korea, China, and Bono. <laughs> uh, this seems to me to be a curious combination. Can you provide us with more detail of what is going on there? Look, it's supposed to make the reader realize that nothing happens in a vacuum, that, you know, pop stars get involved in politics, um, and that and that what's hidden underneath all of that, there are layers and layers of what it means to be free, what it means to be independent. Um, because the white Rhodesians had, this, had the covert support of the US, you know, and the UK, uh, and Israel and South Africa. And it, so what that is, what I'm trying to say in shorthand is, here are the two conflicts. You can tell by who's supporting them, basically what the values are of each side. Thank you so much. Um, 
If you don't mind, I would like to read a short passage from your book. And listeners, uh, the writing in this book is beautiful. The prose is as good as anything I've ever read. Uh, And the passage is, Like love, war is a bloody mess when it's happening and a worse mess when it's over. But with any distance, you can look back at either and see only the glory or only the pain. The dusk-obscured truth, somewhere in the middle of all our human messiness, is very difficult to recognize. Honestly, it's so faint through the dim pewter gloaming. It may not even be there at all, shapeless and formless. Perhaps it's God or time or all things. It's grace in any case. Some soldiers claim to have seen it through gun smoke. Women pushing life into the world might catch a glimpse of it. It's in the start of everything and in everyone's end, surely. But to have clarity in the routine of your ordinary life, not at the very end or in extremis, that's amazing grace, and you don't just wake up there either. Alexander, have there been periods in your life when you've experienced such clarity? Um, so I was about a third of the way writing through this book when I lost my son. Um, very suddenly, he died at 21. And um, I mean, the first thing that happens is a pain so obliterating that that's all you can feel. But in the rounds and rounds of grief, because you don't just do a single round of grief, there is, in the acceptance of that death, not that you stay there, but there are moments of amazing grace. And it's not an extremist necessarily that you get there. I mean, I, I can think of times when it's been in my own body and I've been in a situation that has been that has pared away everything else except for the moment that I'm absolutely in. And I can think of, you know, times on assignment, for example, in my um, my reporting career, when I have been uh, in situations which are extreme, not for me, but for the people around me. And in those moments, everything goes quiet. And there is, I think, the grace of simply being... Um, And I can think of times in Haiti, South Africa, Mozambique, Angola, when I have felt that and seen that, mostly through the example of the people around me, that here is, you know, a sort of everyday life and beauty. I mean, the sort of protest of beauty in the face of absolute hardship and poverty and difficulty. And that, for me, is amazing grace. When you can emerge from say, the City du Soleil in Port-au-Prince, which is um, just an impossibly difficult place to live. You know, this glittering, hot, barren uh, shanty out on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince um, in which people have been living since, since the earthquake of 2010 and emerging from there with, you know, thoroughly scrubbed children in school uniforms that sense of resilience sense that you're going to carry on that for me is amazing grace thank you so much listeners we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors and i will be right back with alexander fuller the book and podcast is sponsored by libro fm audiobooks libro fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore quail ridge books You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price 
as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Alexandra Fuller, author of Travel Light, Move Fast, published by our friends at Penguin Press. Alexandra, you write a passage where a financial advisor asks your father about his plans for retirement, and you alluded to this passage earlier. His answer was, heart attack on the job or a decent dose of malaria, and until then, I intend to misspend what's left of my youth. It sounds like your father believed that a well-spent youth was a misspent youth. Um, Do you think this is what he meant? And if so, what was his idea of a well-spent, misspent youth? (laughs) I think that for him, there was, I mean, I remember him saying to me when I had first moved to the States and he came to visit me and uh, sort of putting it together, he would never have said it in this particular way, but that, you know, in Zambia and Zimbabwe, Fuel is expensive. Life is cheap. In the U.S., fuel is cheap and life is very expensive. And there, for him, that felt like, um, you know, privileging your own essence, your own being over the survival of the planet, the survival of other people, to sort of so greedily hang on to life and to um, so so greedily hang on to longevity in a way that feels peculiarly Western to me. Um, Old age is something that you achieve in places like Zambia and Zimbabwe through luck, but not because you sort of careful yourself away and stash away money for yourself and do all these squirreling activities um, that don't necessarily lead to a thrilled life or a thrilling life or a whole life or a fulfilled life. I mean, I think we have a huge problem with depression among the elderly in Western countries who are sort of housed in, you know, uh, to quote House Bunny, one of my favorite movies, housed in orphanages for old people. Um, And so for him, uh, robust old age or robust, misspent, well-spent youth was to live it, not to, quote unquote, you know, retire and, and... um, and, and that culturally has always astonished me, that you grind your way through years of a job that you hate so that you can possibly, maybe, enjoy this selfish chi- second childhood or something at retirement, um, which doesn't seem to me to be an initiation into elderhood at all. I mean, I think the real work begins when you're an elder. I think the recreation is all this nonsense of acquisition and... Um, empowering yourself through stuff you know it's what you do in your middle age you get a mortgage and a family and buy a wardrobe full of clothes and a car and and I I mean I do think that what my father showed me best was that um, a graceful old age a graceful way to accept the fact that you will be leaving the planet is to leave as much as possible to the planet um, so that you can check out kind of free of that Excellent. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Um, I want to talk about 
your sister, Vanessa, um, you wonder on the page how she has kept up for her whole life an utter indifference to authority, a feat you write that is impressively harder to pull off than it looks. Um, can you tell us about this? We were both sent to boarding school very young age, and being institutionalized really does something to you. I mean, they, the boarding, and when I say boarding school in this country, I think people have visions of, I don't know what they do at boarding schools here, you know, fox hunting and lacrosse or something, but it was, that was nothing like our experience. I mean, it's quite strict Southern African government boarding schools where, um, you know, we were going to be we were basically trained to go to war. I mean, particularly to begin with during Rhodesia's apartheid, although they were wise enough to never call it that, um, or cunning enough to never call it that, I should say. Uh, they just sort of quietly had robust, brutal segregation and, um, and, and kind of covered it up. They weren't as vocal about it as the South Africans were. But in boarding school, um, to begin with, we were really trained with the idea that when we turned 18, the boys among us would be going to war and the girls among us would be supporting those boys in war. And so it meant that these schools were very kind of militaristic. And you, so you learn from a very early age how to break the rules without being caught. And I was never very good at it. I'm such a, I, something internally in me needs to please teachers and sort of be well behaved it made me a perfect candidate to be a child of white supremacy because I didn't really question it until the questioning of adolescence arose naturally at about 14 in which at which time I began to reject my childhood but it's been a very long process I'm 50 I would say I'm still working on washing out you know the the abuse really of being raised in that way um, and the confusing abuse, because, of course, I really loved the people who raised me. Um, and it seems to me that what my sister did was just sort of coasting along indifferently to what anyone said or did or how much trouble she got into. She didn't care about passing tests. She just sort of floated her way through. And I think, in a way, what ended up happening was because I was a lot more engaged than she was, I had to disengage. So I was the one in the family who began to be outspoken about, about how racist we were and, and what racism does to white people. I mean, I think that we have a strong idea of what happens to the people who are oppressed, but we don't speak much from a white settler point of view about what happens to the oppressors, the amount of addiction, the amount of kind of um, neurotic fragility that accompanies that much fear, that much sense of superiority, that much uh, denial of humanity around you thank you so much alexandra um your mother in this book seems to frown upon the influence that living in america has had on you um <laughs> and speaking to you now it seems like some of the things that she uh frowns upon in the book are the same things uh that you frown upon um <laughs> <laughs> what is it about being american that she doesn't like i mean i think she basically disapproves of me and so the fact I mean she doesn't disapprove of George W. Bush she th thought he was magnificent so it wasn't everything and she thoroughly approves of um, you know my sister uh, uh, here's a great example of my mother's and my differences so I would say um, my sister was willfully illiterate she just refused to read and write she and it was part of her sort of way I think of 
um, pushing back against the way that we've been raised. Um, and, sh and, you know, she mixes up her vocabulary. She uh, will, alarms people by confusing hitchhiker and hijacker. My sister and mother came to visit me. My sister didn't read the form that you're supposed to fill out if you're a foreigner coming into the country that says, are you now? Have you ever been a Nazi? Are you a communist? Do you have a communicable disease? Are you a drug addict? Are you a terrorist? She just checked, yes, yes, yes. My mother said it was marvelous. moment we landed in Atlanta, Border Patrol carted her off. Um, and I, my mum was able to look through the sort of tiny little slit of glass where my sister was sitting, being interrogated. And my mum said, it was just your sister and a thousand weeping Mexicans. I love this country. So she has a real approval of America's kind of muscle, its bullyingness, which I don't. What she frowns upon um, mostly was the fact that I had my teeth straightened. She thinks this is the most American thing, is to have rows and rows of glittering white straight teeth. Um, she can't bear the accent which I've picked up um, and the sort of softness that she uh, associates with being American. So those are the, and I suppose in a way that softness is something that I try and avoid. It's very easy to fall into, it's very seductive, this idea that you should be catered to. Um, and, uh, and again, what, our disapprovals are, are, are different. My mother really is, I mean, as a sort of white supremacist, part of the uh, ethos of that is that you are an individual, you know, this kind of myth of individualism, which completely ignores the fact that without, you know, the, the hundreds of people that you rely on, Every day, we all rely on each other uh, to sort of support one another through. Um, you would collapse. Um, but my mother really admired that in, in the US, whereas um, I very much believe in community. And that, you know, I think comes from being raised so young among indigenous Mashona people. Um, so, yeah, we both have this weird disapproval, but I wouldn't say that they naturally, uh, that they're, you know, that they're the same. Dis disapprovals. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alexander. Um, I'm going to switch gears for a moment. And you did talk a little bit about this earlier. Um, and I want to talk again about the epilogue to your book. In the epilogue, you reveal that your son died before this book was published. And you share a little on the page, though it seems like a lot was shared when one considers the weight of the content about the grief that you suffered. And Alexander, as a reader, this passage shocked me at the end of the book. And as I mentioned to you in the beginning, I lost my father almost a year ago, so I can identify with the loss of a father, but I also am a father um, myself. And reading this epilogue was heartbreaking in the way that my heart was breaking for you. Um, how did you find the strength to write about your son and your grief at the end of this book about your father? I honestly don't know. I mean, I think it was necessity because writing's what I do for a living. Um, and I needed, you know, one needs to keep living. Um, but to lose a father is to lose your past and to need to step into this role of eldership. To lose a son is to lose your future. And that is a much more um, stringent instruction, I think. And it you know, now you're being called upon not just to be an elder, but to be, you know, the mother of a precocious ancestor, really. And the, um, 
I would say that the strength really came from knowing that my father had gone through this three times. And also, again, once again, from my community back in Zimbabwe, you know, when what American people would say to me was, oh, my God, this is unimaginable. I don't know how you're going to get through it. This is you'll have this forever. You never get over it. You know, you're, you're just being told basically you're just dead wood till your own death. Um, in Zimbabwe, I, I got an email from a school friend of mine shortly after my son died. And what she said was, we are devastated with you. And so immediately the sense that you're alone and isolated and just you on your individual little island are supposed to be able to figure this out, that disappears. And then she said something that put it all in perspective, which was the first one is the hardest. And it made me realize that, oh, right. To go through that, put yourself into the vat of suffering that is to lose a child once is very hard. But to do it more than once, as so many of my um, contemporaries do in Zimbabwe and Zambia, is to get honed down to your essence. Um, and I think, I mean, I understand that now in a practical way that I never would have, ever. I mean, I couldn't have spoken about it. I think partly because it's something we avoid touching. The pain of it feels like it will devastate us, and it does, and it is supposed to. I mean, that is... Um, after all, the gift of grief is to, I think, dissolve ego um, because ego is where the pain is, you know, what should be, what should belong to me, what should have happened, what I, you know, what I would prefer. That's all ego. And I mean, God or fate or whatever it is laughs in the face of that. That's not the point. <laughs> the universe, the cosmos doesn't care. You're born and you die. I mean, that's common. Um, and so I think, um, you know, the lesson of this really sort of already being, I mean, it was, was not quite three years that my dad uh, had been gone when my son died. I, I wasn't over the death of my father before I needed to start coping with the death of my son. Um, and it really made me realize that, you know, this in theory idea that I have of what it must be like to be... Um, an immigrant or a refugee and to lose land and family and more than one family member at once or to have suffered, you know, the horror of something like the Holocaust, that there are, I mean, accidental death will happen, but to be the cause of death as humans have been, you know, 170 million humans killed by other humans in the last century, the violence and anger that we have toward each other um, on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that what really gave me the strength to carry on was this driving force that we need a narrative out there that says we need to be kinder to one another because life's difficult and it's a beautiful, wonderful, you know, wondrous, miraculous thing. Um, we're all sort of, I mean... You're a divine expression of God. I'm a divine expression of God. Our current president's a divine expression of God. It's different expressions of it. Trees are. God, all life is. You know, I mean, just that. And you really get that sense once you've been honed down to nothing, which is, I think, what this kind of grief does. In a way, it's not a strength. It's a, I don't know what the word is. It's surrender to the story. Um, because strength isn't enough. Strength will only get you so fast. Surrender will get you the rest of the way. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Um, 
finally, back to your father. Your father used to say, it'll be all right mm. in the end. And if it isn't all right, it isn't the end. How often did he say this? And is it something that you yourself have internalized? I've absolutely internalized it. He would say it once in a while, but he really was someone that... Uh, he was a man of very few words by the time uh, he re reached his... Uh, he was exuberant and wise and witty, but if he was um, in a place of process or pain, uh, I'm now assuming this because he wouldn't say anything. I think that he definitely processed that stuff um, in a very stoic sort of way. Um, and that that must have been a mantra that he kept in his head because it, often things are not okay. And he would shrug it off. I mean, living in Zambia, it's perpetually something's not fine. Um, and he was living proof and it was a great gift to me that I got to watch him die and see that not taking your own death personally makes that death okay. Um, and I've written this in the book too because it seemed to me really the essence of what he was really trying to say. I grieved him terribly when he died and I grieved everything that I lost with him. I lost, you know, connection with my mother and sister. I lost, therefore, connection with the farm in Zambia, which I love. You know, I, my, my mother and, and that land were really the sort of twin loves of my life, however complicated, motherland. Um, and, you know... In this dream, he uh, came to me as a rickshaw uh, walla in India somewhere, some sort of crowded city in India. And I'm stuck in a taxi in the stream, and I'm trying to get out of the taxi to speak to him. And I'm bawling my eyes out, and he's laughing in, on his rickshaw, and he's yelling at me through the window, it was just a life, Bobo, it was just a life. And that isn't to cheapen life at all. In fact, I think it is to sort of put life in, in its grand perspective, that it was just one little, that he's just one little fragment of this much bigger experience that we call life that includes all time, all things, everything existing in the universe, and most of it very mysterious to us as much as we pretend or want to think that we know it all. Um, if we humans survive our current stupidity, um, I think we'll look back at this age as a, as a time of bafflement and dark, darkness, that we really were groping toward an understanding of what, um, of what it means to belong to the cosmos, because we've done a terrible job of belonging uh, responsibly to the earth. Thank you so much, Alexandra, and thank you for sharing your story and your words with us. Um, listeners, I've been speaking with Alexandra Fuller, author of this beautiful book, Travel Light, Move Fast, published by our friends at Penguin Press. Alexandra, thank you for joining me. Thank you so, so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Alexandra Fuller for joining me. Signed copies of Travel Light, Move Fast can be purchased in-store at Quill Ridge Books and online at www.quillridgebooks.com while supplies last. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate to Libro.fm and insert the promo code BOOKIN to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookend.